Now, if you were here last week, uh, you, you heard us introduce a new sermon series last week called Looking at the Cross. And we're going to spend the next few weeks really just doing that, looking at Jesus's cross and trying to do so from a few different angles to emphasize um, particular pieces. It's just there's so much depth, so much richness of what Jesus has done on the cross that we have to look at it from a bunch of different angles. So angle number two, as you might have been able to tell from the cover of your bulletin, is sacrifice. And if you'll open your Bibles, if you've got them, we're going to, we're going to kind of start, use Matthew 26 as our, our launching spot. We're not going to really stay there for very long, but, but we'll center most of our discussion over the next few weeks between, uh, around Matthew 26 and 27. But again, we're going to kind of be all over the Bible. So let me read this very familiar passage of scripture. It's one that we actually read last week as well. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my, this is the blood, excuse me, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it new with you in my father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our father, we pray that you would open our, our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts, that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, we come as those who, who need to come under your word. We need to come and sit under your teaching. And Lord, we need to come and sit under the love that you have displayed for us on the cross. Will you help us to see that more fully today, that we might leave here uh, encouraged, convicted, but assured of the amazing love that you have for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story um, on the radio not too long ago about a woman who was the daughter of a murderer. And she was having an interview with the son of the man who was murdered. And it was a really fascinating interview to listen, particularly though to listen to the amazing amount of guilt that this woman still carried. She told about how she had actually met with a, a grief counselor when she was 20 and asked if she could possibly be sterilized so that she would keep from having so much evil being brought into the world through her family line. This woman was asking a question that many of us ask, right? Which is, can I be forgiven? Is it possible for me to be forgiven? Some of you, for some of you, that's the central question maybe that's in your life, which is the things that I have done in my life, in my past, maybe in my present, am I able to be forgiven for them? For the person that I've wounded most in my life, can that person forgive me? And more so, can God actually forgive me for those things? Many of us are asking that question, can I be forgiven? Some of us are also, though, asking the opposite question, which is, can I actually forgive someone else? Uh, you may have read some of these amazing stories a few years ago uh, after the Charleston church shooting of members of family members of those who have been killed coming to court and being able to look actually face to face with the shooter and say things like, you took from me something that I'll never be able to get back and I'll, I'll never have my sister again, but I forgive you. And I pray that the Lord would be merciful to you. Honestly, y'all, I don't know if I could say that. That's a hefty thing to say. 
And some of you, I think, probably struggle with that big question too. Can I really forgive? Can I let go of resentment? Can I forgive the person who has wounded me the most in my life? Can I forgive the spouse who lied to me? Can I forgive the mother who spoke hateful words to me? Can I forgive the friend who betrayed me? Can I actually begin to forgive them? Now, those are big kind of examples, right? But we deal with them in small ways, too, in our lives all of the time. Some of you have a spouse who holds grudges, who likes to just kind of nip little bit by little bit with passive-aggressive words. That when you do something that's wounding, they just start to take back and take back and take back. And there's this long process of grudge holding. Well, it's the same question they're wrestling with, right? Can I forgive? Can I be forgiven? Some of you have a spouse like that. Some of you, some of your spouses have a spouse like that too, just by the way. And so we're wrestling with those things all the time. Can I forgive? Can I be forgiven? And that last example, I think actually gets at the heart of what forgiveness really is. That forgiveness and particularly not forgiving others is actually us taking what we think we need to have as a reciprocal to balance out the scales, right? So that if you wound me, I have to kind of go and take back some wounding for you, a pound of flesh for a pound of flesh so that everything is kind of balanced. Forgiveness is actually just the opposite. What forgiveness is, is actually you eating the cost, eating the pain, eating the wounds, Now, the Bible says this really clearly. In Hebrews, it says that uh, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But this is also just evident in the way that we live our lives normally, right? If if somebody actually runs their car into my fence, if Tom, not that he's ever done this or ever would do that, but ran his car into my fence and wrecked my fence, well, I could say, Tom, I forgive you. It's okay. Don't worry about it. All is forgiven. But I've still got a fence that's broken, I've still got a pretty fat bill for how I need to fix things, right? So at the end of the day, I'm just going to eat the cost. Uh, if you look back at the financial crisis a few years ago, this is also what happened. Banks, big banks were going crazy lending money to people they shouldn't have. They were really preying off of people's desires to own homes. And at the end of the day, these bank, Bank of America, I think, owed people $17 billion dollars. And what our government says is, well, we can't let them fail, so we will eat the cost. And by government, I mean the taxpayers, you and I. We ate the cost, right, of that failure. Somebody had to take it, and it just so happened that the tax base took it. That is at the heart of forgiveness, is that someone actually has to eat the sin. Someone has to take the cost. Now, you could say that a different way by just saying, at the heart of forgiveness is sacrifice. The heart of forgiveness in any way, and the heart of forgiveness as it runs through the Bible, is sacrifice. What we're going to do today is we are going to do a super kind of turbo overview of sacrifice in the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. We're going to look at three kind of threads that run through the Bible that that, uh, that really are all centered around this theme of sacrifice. We're going to go really fast. There's more than three, by the way, but we only have time to look at three today. So open your Bible and buckle up because we're running pretty quickly here. The first is that we're going to look back at Exodus. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, chapter 12. This is where Moses talks about the Passover. This is the institution of the Passover. A little context, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and he, is, he has brought all of these crazy plagues on Egypt, and the last and the final plague is the death of the firstborn. 
And what God tells Israel, his people to do is this, starting in verse one of, um, of Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb and your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You can take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lint and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw, raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts and let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fashioned and sandals on your feet and staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What God had told his people was that they were to take this lamb. They were to put the blood of this lamb after it had been sacrificed on their door. And that what God actually came through the land of Egypt to strike down all of the firstborn, he would see the blood on their door and he would pass over their house. The lamb's blood actually was sacrificed for them. Now, here's a, here's a really important thing to remember in this. God's people, Israel that time, and God's people now, the church, are by no means innocent. We are under the same corruption and condemnation of sin. Sin is a sickness that we are born with. And so God's people then were born with that same sickness. And if you keep reading through Exodus, you keep seeing actually these people, they don't act very innocent. And they, in fact, are always turning away from God. So God isn't able to just say, you know what, I'll pass through Egypt and I'll, I'll, I'll kill all the evil people and I'll let all of the really great, perfect, innocent people survive. Everything will be fine. God isn't letting it fly. He's not letting it go. He's actually lovingly giving them a substitute. The substitute, the lamb, would actually be sacrificed for their forgiveness and he would stand in their place. That's the way it worked. All right, now flip over to the New Testament, the Gospel of John. The fourth, fourth book in the New Testament and the first chapter of John. When we open up the gospel of John, we're introduced to another guy named John, not the same John that wrote the book, but John that we oftentimes call John the Baptist. And we see him kind of come on the scene and he's preaching and he's baptizing. He's proclaiming the coming of the king. But we actually don't see he and Jesus interact until this point in chapter one, verse 29. And listen, this is the first interaction that Jesus and John have. Uh, John one, verse 29. The next day, he, meaning John, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is saying, all of that celebration that you've done, 
All of that celebration every year of the Passover. Guess what? Look, it's here. This is the lamb. This is actually the way that the Bible works. The threads of the Bible are, are tied together, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so you can almost think of the Old Testament like it's a, like it's a connect the dots. And you're seeing the dots beginning to be drawn and they're beginning to be connected. And once you kind of finish it and you open it up and the, you, you read these gospel accounts, you take a step back and you say, whoa, this picture that I've just connected, it's a picture of Jesus. And really the New Testament writers, most of what they're doing is they're filling in that picture. They're shading and painting different places to get a better and better picture of this is who Jesus is, the one who's been promised, the one who has been, uh, who's fulfilling all of the promises and the, and the, the shadows and the types and the prophecies in the Old Testament. He's here. And that's what John the Baptist is saying to his disciples. Behold, look, look, this lamb that we have been celebrating year after year after year. That's it. This is the one who would actually come and be sacrificed on our behalf. This is the real thing that we need. This is the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. When I was in college, um, I got appendicitis. And uh, it was a weird, pretty bad version of appendicitis because it just kind of presented itself weirdly. I didn't know it for about two weeks. It would kind of come off and on. Uh, and eventually, I started to get really sick. But the key point to know is that during this time in college, I did not have health insurance. So while I was getting sicker and sicker, I was also just growing more and more in my denial that anything was, you know, wrong with me at all. It'll be fine. I'll be all right. I'll kind of push through it. It's fine. I'm not going to the hospital, right? Because that's going to come with a big old fat bill. And it was Joy, who I was dating at the time, who finally said, you have 104 temperature. We're going to the hospital. So she took me to the hospital turns out, yes, I had appendicitis. It had ruptured and my body was leaking poison all throughout my body, which is why I was getting sicker and sicker. And after um, a nice long surgery and about three days of recovering in the hospital, uh, I was home and starting to get better. Well, about a month later, I received the first bill in the mail. And it was a bill from the anesthesiologist, not the hospital, not the surgeon, just the guy who put me to sleep. Okay. Uh, and it was for about $3,500. And remember, I didn't have insurance, so I got to pay all this. So I'm starting to think, you know, plotting well. Um, I would never own a car or a home and my children will never go, um, you know, to college because I will be paying off this bill for the next 4,000 years. So I get on the phone to call, uh, the anesthesiologist's office again, which is probably the smallest bill that I'm going to get. And I'm trying to set up a little payment plan and I call and the office receptionist answers the phone and I say, Derek McCollum, I got this bill. I'd like to set up a payment plan. So she says, hang on a second. Let me get your file. She goes back. She grabs my file. She opens it up. She says, well, Mr. McCollum, we have this kind of agreement with the hospital and whatever, whatever discount the hospital offers you, um, we have to honor that same discount. I said, oh, cool. I like that word discount. That's fun. Um, how much of a discount did they give me? And she said, they gave you a hundred percent discount. And I said, okay, bye. Thanks. <laughs> it really was amazing. I was really sick and, and they healed me <laughs> and then they did it for free. They took the cost on themselves. They ate the cost. That's what Jesus has done for us. We are sick <laughs> with sin. It has infected us. 
And we have been healed. And he has taken the cost on himself. He has eaten the sin. All right, thread number two. Get your Bibles ready again. Flip over then to the next book in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, which is, I'm sure, where you guys have all been spending your devotional time lately. Leviticus chapter 16. This is the explanation of the Day of Atonement, which uh, if you if you know of the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, it comes out of Leviticus, not Genesis, did I say Genesis? Leviticus 16 is what I meant. It comes out of Leviticus 16. This is, uh, this is what God says here. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But it's in this way that Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on and take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other Lot for Azazel, which is the name of a place in the wilderness where this goat is going to be sent. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now that can be kind of confusing, but really the heart of it is that sin had to be atoned for. There had to be sacrifice. So the Bible says that not only are we born with a sickness called sin, but actually that it's something that we walk in all of the time, that it's something that has infected our hearts that even as Christians, we still deal with. Now, if you've never heard that word sin, or maybe you've heard it plenty of times, but you've just never heard it really defined, uh, there's a few different definitions, but this is one that I like that is helpful for us, I think, this morning, is that sin is our finding our significance or our worth, or our value in something other than God. Finding our full significance or worth or value in something other than God. For instance, when I feel like my feelings are hurt by my wife or my children, and I go and I get a half gallon of Bluebell ice cream, and I sit on the couch and I eat it to make myself feel better, that is me actually finding my soothing, my significance, my help in a big bucket of ice cream rather than in the Lord. And here's what's crazy about sin, right, is that we can actually do good things and use good things in sinful ways, like ice cream. We can use that in sinful ways. And so what we read in the Bible is that our hearts are bent and broken. We're always prone to do that, to be using God's good things to get something from him rather than actually to be closer to him. And what Leviticus 16 lays out is that there needs to be forgiveness for that. And God's people were told, come and bring yourselves before me and offer a sacrifice that there might be blood shed so that the heart of forgiveness might be there through sacrifice. Now, okay, in your Bibles, flip over to the New Testament again. We're in the book of Hebrews now this time, which is 
close to the end. If you don't want to jump around, that's fine. You can just listen. In fact, we already read this, this verse, um, these verses earlier, uh, earlier in our worship service. Listen to Hebrews 9, and I'm going to read um, uh, verse 6 and then skip down a little bit. Here's verse 6. These preparations thus have been made. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he only goes once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And then uh, go down to verse 11. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is is the same thing actually that John was doing. He says, look back, see all of those dots that we were connecting back in Leviticus? Guess what? It's Jesus the high priest that would go and offer sacrifices to God. This is the one who's actually done it once and for all. And how crazy is this, is that the high priest was also the sacrifice too. That's what he's saying, is that Jesus as the high priest who goes and offers these sacrifices, the offering that he makes is of himself, so that we might be forgiven, so that his blood might actually cover our sin, so that he might sacrifice himself for us. Okay, third stream, you ready to jump around again? We've already said that, uh, that, that we need to be cleansed from the sickness of sin that we have in ourselves. And now we've said also that we need to be cleansed from the, the regular, even everyday sins, the way that we oftentimes find our significance outside of God. But here's one really important thing, is that cleansing can only come through the right person. So flip over to Isaiah. Isaiah's kind of right in the middle. Again, if you don't want to find it, that's fine. You can just listen. This is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He's got two messages basically to Israel. He tells them, one, um, you're straying away and you've left the Lord and there are going to be consequences for that. But he gives also the second message that runs throughout the whole thing that says, but God is merciful and there is hope and God is actually going to do something. And throughout the second half of Isaiah, this figure begins to pop up, this figure that he calls the servant of the Lord. And we see that this figure, the servant of the Lord, is actually a type of who the Messiah will be. It describes who the rescuer of God's people, the Messiah, is going to be. So listen now to Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah says is that there is a Messiah coming. There is a rescuer coming. There is a king coming. But that king is going to look really different than we are oftentimes accustomed to kings looking like. That king is going to look like a suffering servant. One who would come to lay his life down for his people. To be the perfect sacrifice that we might be healed. That we might be forgiven. Okay, flip over now to 1 Peter. It's actually after a couple of books after Hebrews. 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, if you don't want to flip over, you can just listen. That's fine. Listen to what Peter says here in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. And listen to this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a lot like that guy that Isaiah was talking about. And again, this is Peter saying, okay, you see all of the dots that we've been connecting. Let's paint it in here so that you can see it really clearly. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the one who would come to rescue us. But in an incredible fashion, it's Jesus, the one who would come and lay himself down for us. Be pierced for our transgressions. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Friends, it's throughout the whole Bible. The threads run together. They weave together to create a fabric that says forgiveness is available because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Sacrifice is at the heart of our forgiveness. And that is what Jesus has done for us. All right, let's just spend a couple of minutes uh, talking application. What do we do with that? What do we do with all of these scriptures? Well, here's three things. Uh, and the first is this, really. It's going to be four things, sorry. Here's one thing. That if this is all new to you, uh, if you would just, if you would say, I'm not really Christian, I don't know what I think about Jesus, I'm here kind of checking it out, but I don't know what I think. First of all, I'm so glad that you're here. You are welcome here. Um, and I would love for you to explore this more. Look more deeply at the sacrifice of Christ. Look more deeply at what he has done for you. Look more deeply at your need for forgiveness and begin to chew on those things. And if you want help talking about it, I would love to talk to you. And for those of us who are Christians, here's a few things for us to remember and be encouraged by. The first is this, is that when you open up the Bible and you open up the gospel accounts, when you read about Jesus, we need to have the shadow of the cross being kind of in the background all of the time. When you open up and you read of Jesus' birth, the shadow of the cross should be there in the background. When you read of Jesus' healing ministry, when he heals somebody, when he heals a blind man, or he raises a crippled man, or he raises a dead man to life, it's the shadow of the cross that's kind of reverberating there, where he is saying sin and brokenness and death needs to be dealt with, and I'm going to do that. When you hear Jesus' teaching, 
Listen to the reverberations of the cross in his teaching. I would even encourage you during the next few weeks, during Lent, as we prepare for Easter, uh, choose one of the Gospels and just start reading it. And have the cross there in the background as you're reading all of Jesus' life and ministry. So that's the first thing. Here's the second, is that the cross has to be, it has to be actually the power, the motivation for us as we live the Christian life. Uh, if we are going to actually live as Christians, we have to be motivated by the cross. Our lives have to be centered on the cross. If you've ever put bad gas in your lawnmower or on your car, you know it doesn't work right, right? If it's gone bad. The, the gas for the Christian life is the cross. It is the sacrifice of Jesus and what he has done for us. Christians are not those who just simply say, okay, great, I realize I need Jesus once and I've repented and I've clinged to him by faith, now we're done, right? And I kind of just get to live my life uh, and be fueled by something totally different. That's not the way the Christian life works. Actually, repentance and faith is a daily, an hourly, a minute-by-minute process whereby we are always falling on our knees before Jesus. We are always saying, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I have realized that I need you more today than I knew yesterday. And I need and I embrace and I celebrate the forgiveness of the cross more and more and more. That's got to be the power for the Christian life. Because if our fuel is anything else, if our fuel is duty, if our fuel is making God feel good about us and accepting us, if our fuel is, you know, just checking the box of doing what is culturally appropriate, then it's just not going to work. That is, that is bad fuel. It is not going to fuel us. It has to be, our lives have to be empowered by the cross. And then here's the third one. Is that as Christians, our lives also should take the shape of the cross. If we are those who are empowered by the sacrifice of Jesus, then we are also those whose lives should begin to look like sacrifice. We begin to lay our lives down for each other. We begin to give the money that we'd rather spend. We begin to uh, share the time that we'd rather have on our own. We begin to actually lay down our lives and our wishes and the things that we really hold dear for others so that they may have life. We were at a wedding last night and the minister said something really pretty amazing too. He looked at these, at these two beautiful, you know, this, this young man and young woman and they looked so wonderful and all the tons of people were there ready to celebrate and it was such a happy time. And he looked at them and he said, um, he said, we're here because you have basically come to die. That's what you've come here to do. And he was right. That's what marriage is. It is us laying down our lives for one another. It is a spouse laying himself down for another and the other spouse doing so in return to say, my life is not my own, but it is now yours. Friends, that is what we have been called to as those who are empowered by the cross, those who are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, those who are loved with an immeasurable love that he has displayed to us in his crucifixion. We are those who now are empowered to go and to lay our lives down for others. Let's pray that the Lord enable us to do that now. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for uh, this wonderful news that there is forgiveness for sin. Lord, we need it. I need it. Uh, I need it more. I realize I need it more now than um, than I realized yesterday. And I pray that you would continue um, to make that real to me and to us. Thank you, Lord, that we get to see this throughout the Bible. That we get to see this just amazing story. Of you actually dealing with the brokenness of the world, with the brokenness in our hearts. And of you sending your son that he might lay himself down for us. Not only to forgive us, but to renew all things. 
Lord, let us be empowered by that so that we might serve one another and serve the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.